you're here. What's up, Andy? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Your tree's looking healthy back there. Your plant. I'm sorry. Your yeah, plant's I've been watering healthy. it like crazy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it's, it's thirsty, bro. <laughs> yeah, and the water falls off of it because, you know, it's not real. No, uh, no. Yeah. Well, oh, <laughs> well, listen, I, I know like people listen to these episodes whenever, but some good news came out of Europe this week, um, the week of like, what is it, September 25th or whatever it is, um, yeah. which is like we're kind of close on an executive order um, for Privacy Shield, like from the Biden people. This is good news. Cross-border data transfers. Let's go. What do you think? <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> does it obviate? TIA discussions, I hope. Maybe. Probably not. I don't know what it does, but what I think it'll do is create some stability, uh, you know, for companies and orgs. At least for a short period of time. Exactly. At least for some time before they come for this one, too. But I don't know, man. One of our uh, every two years. Yeah. One of our mutual friends on LinkedIn, I think, said something like Shrems 3, you know. Is a hundred percent certain. Here we go. And uh, I think it might have been Heather Guaranteed. Fetterman. Uh, if it wasn't Heather, if it wasn't Heather, it was somebody else, but someone as smart as Heather, uh, who said it. Um, yeah, like it's it's a certainty to me. So yeah, how guaranteed. long does it no, last? That, sure. You know. Yeah. Well, we'll so. see. I I do like the fact that there seems to be open channels of communications across the Atlantic about, like, at least amongst the 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 government officials totally. about how to make this work so that's that's totally. rings to me as good faith conversations because we're coming to outcomes now max and and shrems and and Shrem, max shrems and his uh group can do what they're gonna do but at least yeah there's a it, to me it seems like there's evidence here of like collaborative spirit and all these things we're getting to conclusions you know there's compromises being made like that feels and sounds good to me to me, it, to me, it feels like, you know, one of the steps along the line to a federal privacy law for the U.S. Because if you have collaboration happening and you have that discussion opening up and then you want to develop something here and you want to pass something through Congress, the underpinning of that needs to sort of be there. And then you need to ripple those concepts through uh, through a deal that could be struck and I'm optimistic or optimistic is the wrong word. I'm hopeful that, uh, that we get something in the next year, you know, maybe two years, but that would change the game for sure. Well, yeah, definitely a game changer. Speaking of changing the game, I see you got the sleeveless vest on. So happy fall, man. You broke it out day one, huh? Good for you. Uh, this is, you know, I, I am (laughs) among many things. I'm a fashion icon. So <laughs> I try to, I try to set the trend early. Yeah, dude, you know? you're a fucking trendsetter, man. And like, look, this is cool. Nothing it's... says avant-garde fashion like the old sleeveless fleece vest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you don't see the Gucci T-shirt I have underneath. This is Gucci. <laughs> nice this story. is a nine hundred dollar T-shirt. <laughs> the clandestine Gucci T-shirt. I see what's happening here. Very nice, man. Um, yep. Speaking of premium. And uh, prestige. Uh, we've got Alexander Ebert on today, man. What a rock star! I'm a huge fan. So you're going to see me fanboying the whole episode. Yeah, I couldn't tell. I couldn't in. tell if you respected her. Or oh not. man, <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of people. 
I don't have a lot of like starstruck energy most of the time. And I feel like I've known a lot of folks a long time and I've known her a while. But like it to me, I'm like in awe of her ability to have this like wide range of interests, but not dabble. She goes in deep and like rocks them like, it, you know, like I'm interested in lots of things, but I'm not going to sit here and like act like I know a lot about all of them. This woman is a subject matter expert on such a diverse array of interests and topics that I just find it overwhelming and super impressive. And then when we talk about like our industry stuff, I I challenge you to go find someone who can talk about synthetic data anonymization um, and like the application of AI at the level and detail that she can. I, There's I, a few I, people who isn't a data scientist yeah. or a lawyer. Like, I mean, she knows more yeah. about all this shit There's than a me few, and you combined. I'm positive. There's a few people that we've been so lucky to come across that fit into that category. There's a lot of people like us, I would say, put us in the category of people that know a fair amount about a bunch of different things and can kind of dabble. But I think there are people yep. that, you know, understand the fundamentals of stuff. She's one of these people. Yep. And like other folks yep. like on ad tech, Julia Shulman and Beatrice Bati, like there are certain people that oh, like yeah. just get it at a, at a yep. level that is two clicks beyond where, where I could ever go. And uh, and more, she, yeah, this, Alex, sure. Alexandra is one of them on this topic. So I'm glad you you brought her to the to the podcast as a guest, and it's a really interesting. And can episode. I tell you how how awesome it is for you to read those three names you read off? Alexandra, Beatrice, and Julia are sages in our world. Like it's not even close. And what a beautiful thing that three women are like the leading intellects on on like these super tech, super legal super complicated um, uh, areas of, of discussion. Shout out to all three of them, man. Um, yeah. And, and keep yeah. doing it. <laughs> keep doing it. All right, let's do all this, right. man. I think the, I think the listeners are going to like this one. Here it is. I think so too. Let's go. All right, here we are. We're here. And I, something just flew into my eyes. So we're doing really good to kick this off here. <laughs> <laughs> like, off man. to a tough start. Yeah. Yeah, we're off to a great start. I'm really happy today, and we're really privileged to have Alexander Ebert with us, um, who is a great friend and a smart, wise sage in our world, Andy. Um, so we're super lucky to have her. Um, I was on your podcast not too long ago, right, Alexandra? Was it maybe like a month ago? Something like that. We just published it last week, so... Yeah, we just published it. I had a blast. I've gotten so much positive feedback. Here's the reality, Andy. People have said to me and emailed me, DM'd me, LinkedIn messages, whatever. <laughs> that episode with Alexander is the best podcast you've ever done. I'm like, dude, what happened to my podcast? Like, why don't people like mine? So anyway, shout out to you for having a much better podcast than Andy and I um, and asking all the hard hitting questions. I wouldn't say that, but many thanks for that nice feedback. <laughs> Happy to hear that. All right. Good well, start. Look, I'm going to ask you some I want to get into your career and we we should do that, like your privacy and trust stuff. But I was looking at your bio and there were two things that jumped out to me. Well, a bunch of things jumped out to me. One was Ambassador. No, um, like when you were at Ambassador, like I don't even know what Ambassador is. So I definitely want to learn about that. But <laughs> you've also been like a professional photographer and whatever is a door-to-door -door dialoguer. So what's a door-to-door -door dialoguer? Tell us about your photography. That's actually. Yeah, tell us about these <laughs> Happy things. to do that, Pedro. 
happy to do that. And uh, thank you, Pedro and Andy, for having me. I was very much looking forward to that because I think you have a phenomenal podcast and I always have a blast when listening to you. So I uh, was, was anticipating to be here today. Door to door to a dialogue, I would say that was by far one of the most valuable jobs that I did. Uh, sorry, do I have some echo here? Nope, we hear you perfect. Not to me. Okay, I'll tune it down a little bit. I hope the listeners don't get any echo. So I would say door-to-door dialogue was potentially the most valuable summer job that I did during my time at school and university because it really taught me how to convince people and how to approach people. I was working for an institution similar to the Red Cross and as many... um, Organizations in that space, they of course, have a fundraising issue that not as many people donate as they would need to. So door-to-door dialoguer actually goes from door-to-door and convinces people to uh, annually uh, donate to the Red Cross and similar organizations. And this is the job that I took, and it was so much fun because I firstly got into uh, conversations with, I would say, a billion of people. And secondly, I could do really uh, great stuff for the Red Cross organizations out there. And I think over the course of a summer managed to uh, collect roughly 400,000 euros in fundraising. So on the one hand, it was a great uh, way to learn how to speak with people. On the other hand, it was also about doing good and getting uh, money to an organization that can do great stuff with that. And you did this while you were in school? I actually did it after graduating. So it was the first job I took. It was uh, initially three weeks, but then I had so much fun that I continued for two two more months. And yeah. And at the same time, around the same time, you were also um, a horse photographer. Is that right? Like, is that what it was? (laughs) That's potentially the most peculiar part of my career. So uh, (laughs) actually, I was always into horse riding when I was little, and I wanted to train at some of the best trainers that we had here in Austria. But of course, they were terribly expensive. My pocket money didn't suffice for that. So I was looking for a creative way to earn money without having to stay away from horses too long. And actually, I found this niche about horse portrait photography that wasn't well catered to in Austria because all the professional photographers didn't have any clue of horses and how they should look like in the pictures. And uh, I actually had the, uh, pleasure, uh, the, the pleasure of lending the professional camera of my dad. So I had pretty good equipment. Nice. And this was quite lucrative business and uh, also the start of my photography career. Uh, Andy, you big into the uh, horse portrait uh, sector? <laughs> I would say it's 50% of my job. What about you? <laughs> I need to see Didn't your portfolio, Alexandra, because like, first of all, I love horses, <laughs> but like how you get into the lucrative niche business of horse photography is fascinating to me. Are you still like um, into horses? Do you still do, I don't know, horse, do you still horse around? Uh, I still like horses, but I don't have any time for riding anymore. I actually have a horse that's in early retirement for the past Mm. 10 years and living uh, the life of its dreams, just eating and uh, hanging out with other horses. But other than that, I'm not horse riding anymore. Oh, man, that sounds like a good life. I'm not going to lie. I'd love to just hang around with some horses. and I'm also sometimes envious. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so horse photography, like community dialogue, all these interesting things. When did you get your when did your interest in technology and like uh, particularly AI, but just how did you make this transition? What happened? How did this all play out? 
while I was always curious in so many things and I'm so passionate about learning that uh, all of this happened in parallel, but I would say my passion for new technologies and understanding how they impact not only businesses, but also society actually started quite early on. My dad also worked in tech. So when we had lunch back when I was, I don't know, 10 uh, topics were um, cloud computing and how it's going to revolutionize uh, the industries. So I think this is what uh, got it started. And during my studies, I... Um, um, was roughly around the, the time when GDPR came into effect. I was super curious about the kind of clash between GDPR and the strict rules it opposed on data and how it could be utilized versus the amount of data that you need, need to make AI happen and also the European ambition to become a global responsible leader in artificial intelligence. So this was actually the, these, uh, the topic I took for my master's thesis and I had the greatest of time talking with lawyers, ethicists, politicians, data protection authorities, AI experts uh, about all of these topics. And this is also how I learned about synthetic data and then joined Mostly AI. What is, so tell us about Mostly AI. What, what's the mission um, and what are you guys up to? Well, our mission is actually to enable a responsible and privacy-safe data ecosystem where people can freely collaborate on data without infringing privacy. We are a synthetic data company. In fact, we are the leader in structured synthetic data, and we help big banks, insurances, healthcare organizations, but also public sector to unlock data while making it to synthetic data and thereby preserving the utility of data without risking privacy. I know some. I know a lot of folks listening to this will know what synthetic data is, but my suspicion is that some won't. So, what is it? <laughs> I think that's a good suspicion. So, it's still uh, a new term, or not a that clearly defined term. Uh, when I talk about synthetic data, I talk about AI-generated synthetic data, and the way you can think of this is as an anonymization technology that doesn't have the pitfall of traditional anonymization. So. Uh, quick topic on traditional anonymization. If you traditionally anonymize data, mask it, obfuscate it, uh, trying to delete certain parts of it, you always stick to the original real data and you just try to remove, distort, strike through, shuffle up the parts that you deem to be sensitive, to deem to be re-identifying. The problem is these methods were developed for small data for example, demographic information that companies decades ago collected about their customers. And researchers have shown over and over again that it's actually not safe to apply that to big data assets anymore, because no matter how little information you leave intact from the real data, this is what brings the danger to re-identification and where you can use auxiliary information to re-identify customers. For example, is a study that just two uh, financial transactions out of the dozens or hundreds of credit card transactions we do per year. And even if you only reveal the merchant and the date of the transaction, so let's say yesterday Walmart and the day before Starbucks are sufficient to re-identify over 80% of customers. So quite a privacy risk attached to that when you want to apply to big data. And then, of course, the utility component. Today, companies have hundreds, if not thousands of columns per customers and only preserving two or three of them before you run into re-identification is not necessarily what we need to make AI happen. And with synthetic data, you transform this process of anonymization. You just use the original, the real data of your customers to learn the structures, the correlations, the time dependencies. So basically, that AI is capable to understand how your customers act and behave. 
and no real part of the data is taken, but just the knowledge about the structure of the data to, in a completely separate step, create new synthetic individuals and, let's say, the synthetic financial transactions. And if you look on those two data sets, the original one and the synthetic data one, from a statistical point of view, they will be nearly indistinguishable. So you preserve the utility, but you don't have any real information about the Pedros, the Andes, and the Alexandras in there that would allow any connecting back, any re-identification on top of synthetic data. And this is how you can overcome this clash between data utilization and privacy protection. Can I ask a question about that? Absolutely. Has, a, has any, uh, your company or uh, uh, spoken to European DPAs about their take and their position on synthetic data? Because when I hear this, I think, great, this sounds great. But I also know you know, just discerning eyes of DPAs might have different flavors, different countries, different attitudes towards this. So did you, did your organization or you like do that research and, and how have you like thought about it and engaged with them or not? Great question. And absolutely. So as chief trust officer, part of my uh, work is actually policy engagement. I've been talking with the European Data Protection Authorities for the past four years now. So um, there's actually a report upcoming from the European Data Protection Board. It's anticipated for, uh, I would say, over half a year by now, where they will also cover synthetic data. Uh, for example, also the... Um, Federal Commissioner of Data Protection in Germany, Ulrich Kelber, is one of the advocates for synthetic data who has been talking about synthetic data as a way to reconcile privacy protection and data utilizations and I think conferences in 2019, 2018. I also just uh, in the last few weeks had some sessions with the European Data Protection Supervisor who also sees synthetic data as one of the technologies to watch because it can really help with making data utilization in a privacy safe manner happen. And they they're supportive, I assume, but do they talk to you or do you talk to them about how that initial consent needs to happen or, or there's any subsequent, you know, interaction with the data mm -hmm. data subject around that? Great question. So from a privacy point of view or regulatory point of view, synthetic data, the way we do it is seen as an anonymization technology. So yes, you need to have a legal basis under GDPR, but you need to have the exact same ones as for anonymization. And there again, uh, the majority opinion is currently on the uh, anonymization guidelines that were published in, I believe, 2021, also by Germany, on how to get that. And, and so what's the business model for you guys? Like how, like, how do you deliver, what's the product? I, I got it. There's like <laughs> synthetic data sets, but like company X has a problem. How do you guys solve it? What is the problem and how do you guys solve it? Yeah, yeah. So the problem organizations face is just not being able to access their data internally shared with a broader audience or just that it takes ages. So the fastest enterprises we talk with usually at least need two to three weeks if somebody has a great idea, wants to access data. More common, we hear three months, six months, if it's external data sharing, sometimes even up to eight months. So speed of innovations versus data access is one of the challenges that they face. We as a company have developed a software that's fully automated and we provide to our customers. So we are not a data controller. We are not a data processor. We provide the software and it's installed in the secure environment of, as mentioned, big banks, big insurances, and they operate the software themselves. And most often right. they want to do AI training on top of the synthetic data, but it's also about external data sharing, collaborating with startups, migrating to the cloud, collaborating with researchers. There are actually plenty of uh, use cases that come after synthetic. What a smart move to sort of 
make the software available versus ask for the data and do the processing yourself. That is like, cause that was my next question. It's like, are you guys controllers? Are you guys processed? And the answer is you figured out a way not to be either. How cool and smart is that play? Um, so to that end though, when you turn your, your, your code over to, uh, your customers, uh, how involved are you guys in making sure that it's being used in accordance with like whatever the, your requirements are within mm -hmm. the rules of the mm -hmm. of your agreement? Like, how do you oversee that after you've turned over the software? We've actually worked super hard to automate this product and to make it easy and not have somebody to operate it who has deep privacy or deep data expertise. Mm -hmm. So. The secret to synthetization is that you actually need to have AI-generated synthetic data that comes with the necessary privacy mechanism. So there are various smart things in the software that ensure that you protect privacy. The only things that are left to do for the user are super simple uh, things to consider. They go a little bit in the direction of don't put your cat in the microwave and uh, press yeah. play. So it's really uh, something that you wouldn't really uh, do if you have some type of common sense. And this is actually everything that's needed. We provide, of course, training to our customers. We provide thorough documentation where they can read through everything. And we also have privacy checks in the product. So whenever you run a job, whenever you get your synthetic data, you have a big fat green check mark if everything went successfully on the anonymization front and if that check mark is not there you're advised to start over and make sure that it's there but in 99% of the cases you get the check mark and it's really hard to oversee so this is what we try to bring to the anonymization community because before synthetic data is what always case by case basis and lots of manual effort involved and this of course is in not only lengthy process but also an error prone process like what kind of companies engage with you most often is it large enterprise is it you know a, a variety of different companies like because just hearing it i'm thinking you know i'm a smaller company right i'm thinking to myself <laughs> mm, this is pedro's issue right this is a meta a meta issue or a google issue or a company that has t you know tons of data and assets that they need to think about clean room and think about how to use synthetic data in ways that um that it, you know, are forward thinking and advanced and require resources, but maybe not. I would say in the future, it's an issue of every large and medium organization that has something that you could describe as big data assets. So yeah. as soon as you have 5,000, 10,000 customers, you could think about synthetic data as your technology. To date, it's really as you uh, anticipated enterprise organizations, mainly in heavily regulated industries. So uh, our top customers come from financial services, insurance, health insurance, healthcare, and also telecommunications. Plus, public sector is really up. Uh, for synthetic data generation because they also have this drive of making a synthetic version of the data publicly available to facilitate research and also to facilitate data access for particularly smaller enterprises, the medium enterprises and the startups out there. That makes a lot of sense to me, but it also bums me out. And, and it bums me out because the GDPR and the U.S. privacy you know, laws in different states are creating a situation where smaller companies, it's very difficult to compete because it's a highly regulated industry at this point. If you process personal information, you know, from, from a, a small to medium sized company, it, it, it's heavily regulated. So it bums me out that this isn't quite an available technique, you know, off the shelf for somebody that wants to do the right thing and wants to figure out ways to utilize data. So I hope it, I hope it goes in that direction because right now, like it, it feels have and have not 
and and that feels like not yeah. not necessarily the the themes behind the the privacy laws that that were they're aiming for. You're right, but I would say in short term, uh, there's the or in also midterm, there's this potential of building data hubs that are filled with synthetic data. So we're actually engaging quite a lot on the European level uh, to make sure that data is a commodity that's available, particularly also to researchers and smaller and medium enterprises and the startups out there. So there's quite some potential. And also in the US, we have some pioneers here. One of our customers, Humana, is actually uh, providing synthetic uh, a synthetic version of their customer base or small section of the customer base. I think it's 1.5 million synthetic uh, customers and their detailed insurance claims to facilitate, again, research and collaboration with their partners. And I think that's the way we need to go to make sure that this whole ecosystem of data and AI becomes more inclusive and that not only the big players have the chance to build and innovate in that realm. What it means for a data set to, what it means for a data set to be anonymous sort of varies in some ways, but by jurisdiction, like there's all different variations of like the definition mm -hmm. that I've seen. Mm -hmm. What do you guys apply? How do you think about this? Well, uh, there's oftentimes this uh, two schools of thoughts about relative anonymization and absolute anonymization. Absolute right. anonymization being it's anonymous regardless who gets hold of this data, regardless which additional auxiliary information this person finds, it will be impossible to reverse engineer the data and reveal anything privacy sensitive. And then there's relative anonymization, where in some jurisdictions it's about, okay, one data set might be not anonymous and still personal data for the data controller, but if you remove certain identifiers and gives it on to a third party under some contractual uh, clauses and so on, then it could be seen as anonymous for the person. Um, with all the research that's out there, I think there's not that much right for relative anonymization to still exist because it's just so easy to re-identify data. With synthetic data, we are in the absolute um, area of anonymization that even the person that would do the synthetization and would have the original data set right next to the synthetic uh, version that was created thereof wouldn't be able to prove that this was the data set that this person used to make the synthetic data. So neither the original data nor any other auxiliary information out there would help you to come back to real individuals because there's no data point in there that reflects a real individual and that you could tie back. That's probably the winning it, argument with the DPAs, I imagine, right? Like that's yeah, the, that's right. that point you just made is really important. Mm. Yeah. Andy, is that a Dixon Ticonderoga pencil? <laughs> sure is. How could you see that? Man, it's a number a two when it comes to pencils. It's a number I two. A I've been using it. <laughs> but I I've can been using it for all Dixon my Ticonderoga. <laughs> well, uh, uh, after this. After this podcast, I have a standardized test that I'm going to take with this yeah, number you're two take pencil. The SAT after the <laughs> I, I actually have a I have a follow up. Uh, I have a follow up, a real follow up question. <laughs> um, Sorry, I didn't Alexandra. mean to take us on a pencil tangent. <laughs> no, I love it. Uh, as I as I, hmm. uh, how have you thought about how synthetic data could be used to decrease bias? Mm -hmm. in like internet data bias, which we all know is there. 
I'm so happy that you asked this question because bias and responsible AI is a big passion area of mine. So even though synthetic data originated as an anonymization of privacy enhancing technology, it's also used and will be increasingly used in the responsible AI ecosystem, particularly when we talk about fairness and explainability. Um, to give you a few examples how synthetic data can help here. First thing to consider is we all know we have this global AI talent shortage, but we actually have an even bigger responsible AI talent shortage people who really know how to make sure that an algorithm is fair, doesn't discriminate, and once they're out, uh, complies with the regulation that we will have on responsible AI and particularly fairness. To make sure that if more people get into the AI game, if more small and medium enterprises uh, join and can develop AI, that all of what they will develop is still fair, we need an AI assurance ecosystem. We need a whole ecosystem of tools and service providers, auditors um, that help organizations to make sure what they develop is actually fair, explainable, transparent, responsible. And here, for example, synthetic data plays this role that you can't assess whether a model discriminates or not simply by looking at the code of the model. You need to have as a human auditor access to granular data that's representative or ideally even over-representative with plenty of rare examples and plenty of examples of minority groups. And this is where synthetic data can chip in because if you have that granularity of data, privacy, of course, becomes an issue. So we are actually talking with various regulators and also uh, organizations like insurance organization, audit organizations that want to become these future bias auditors, how they could use synthetic data to make sure that they can provide this as a service. But even if you don't look into external service providers, organizations can also benefit from synthetic data when they want to achieve fairness in many other areas. So uh, one study that was done, I think, two years ago by Microsoft Research or Survey actually and some other players amongst the leading AI companies, the leading tech companies, and some big multinationals when they talk um, in the in the context of AI fairness, was to figure out what are the current challenges that AI fairness practitioners face. And by far the biggest challenge is actually knowing whether your model is biased or not, because oftentimes they can't access sensitive attributes due to privacy laws, due to anti-discrimination laws. With synthetic data, it can become possible to leave those sensitive attributes in there without having a risk for uh, from, from the privacy side. So that's one area where you could use synthetic data. Another one is just having a more geographically widespread data set available. We all know Schrems 2 data sharing, not the easiest part if you want to do it cross-border. So in reality, many organizations that develop their AI, even though they are multinationals, only use data from a specific region to build an algorithm that is then deployed in the US, in Europe, in Asia, and other parts of the world. So here again, synthetic data can help. And one of the most interesting areas for me is actually fair synthetic data. So two years ago, we started to research on what if we would allow our customers, being this now public sector or private sector organizations, to select a mathematical fairness definition and use synthetic data to not only replicate their existing data in a privacy-safe form, but create a world not as it is with all the historic biases, but as a world like they would like it to be. 
for example, where no gender pay gap exists or where you have plenty of examples of minority groups in there. And we actually just started working with uh, the first customers on that and the results that we see in practice are amazing. So also on the data democratization podcast, I spoke with some of our partners from Humana where they started using fair synthetic data and looking into fair synthetic data to make sure that the healthcare resources they allocate are um, allocated more fairly. And I think that's also a pretty example. I love that. Like that's three yeah. very practical <laughs> examples. Like exactly. you don't always get that like answer. Real examples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Real examples. And look, I think Absolutely. Like, but yeah, go ahead. I, I just wanted to add because uh, I don't want to overpromise or I always want to keep uh, want people to keep that in mind. With privacy and with anonymization, it's more a straightforward question. Either something is absolutely anonymous or it not it's not. With right. fairness, it's not that easy. So while synthetic data can solve your privacy headaches, it's not the silver bullet solution to make sure that algorithms are fair because that's such a complex topic that you need to think and start thinking about fairness right from the beginning before even building your AI when you collect data, how you build the AI, uh, how your data set looks like, how you can make it fair, what you need to do during model training and even during monitoring. So fairness is something that is more complex and that you need to look at at all the different stages of the AI lifecycle. Synthetic data can be a valuable tool in there, but just having synthetic data or fair synthetic data is not sufficient to make sure that everything is fair. So I just want people to keep that in mind. It's a valuable tool, but it's not enough. Fairness needs to be uh, thought through the whole life cycle, and you also need to have a diverse group of people working on the problem, uh, pro- uh, working on that problems. Your podcast is called the Data Democratization Podcast. Um, tell us, first of all, I've been a guest on the podcast. I'm super biased here, and I think it's one of the best tech <laughs> podcasts there is. I, like, I don't go on a lot of other people's podcasts. Can, can podcasts. I put this at a quote on my podcast page? Yeah, I, I, you can. Um, I, it, I, I think our episode was excellent, but all I've listened to quite a few, and I think it's really, really good and sort of like the opposite. Like, I think there's like a couple categories of podcasts out there. There's like the goofy kind of social substantive adjacent type of podcast like Andy and mine. Then there's like this super intense technical substantive podcast. And then there's this like small group of podcasts that deal with tech and privacy and AI. And it sort of like bridges the gap between the two. They're substantive and there's real information being shared. Um, but it's 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 not done in such a tone that it almost feels esoteric. I think you strike that balance really well on your podcast. And that's probably a testament to like your experience as a marketer and 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 some of the like diverse experiences you've had. But tell us like how you came upon the concept of the podcast and like what like what what's your what's your plan for the podcast? Like what, what do you want it to accomplish? <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for this wonderful feedback. Really happy to hear that. So uh, actually, the idea for the podcast, I've thought about doing a podcast for quite some time, but it was actually my wonderful colleague, Agnes Fekete from our marketing team who said, well, uh, why don't you start this podcast? Why don't we start this podcast? And then we thought about, okay, how how can we do it? Initially, it was, okay, can we do a synthetic data podcast? But uh Back then, it was just too early that I think it would have taken quite some time to to talk with different guests. So I really wanted to go into different areas, privacy, privacy enhancing technologies, but also obviously because there's so much happening, data and AI regulation and responsible AI, particularly fairness due to my passion that I already mentioned. And uh, this was kind of the the overall um, uh, theme that I set out for the podcast. And then I was just 
stunned by the responses that I got. So I just approached people that I would love to talk to and all of them were up for speaking on the podcast. So I had the pleasure of, for example, interviewing Axel Foss from the European Parliament, who is now one of the lead negotiators for the AI Act. I've spoke with so many experts like Pedro, uh, AI ethicists, uh, lawyers, uh, policymakers, data protection authorities. And every time I have a guest on the show, I just learn so much from them and also in preparation of the podcast that I really enjoy doing that. And I don't have a kind of clear path how I want to take this podcast forward, but definitely I want to continue to approaching people that I would love to hear from and that I know that uh, my listeners, which are mainly uh, senior executives in uh, some of the larger industries we cater to, are, uh, are interested in hearing from. So that's what I can tell you about that. Yeah, and shout out That's for being awesome. a strong woman voice in the heavily male dominated tech <laughs> podcast ecosystem. Like your podcast Thank is you. excellent. Thank you. And it's the benchmark, I think, for for a lot of like, you know, audible entertainment in quotes um in our space. <laughs> Another quote for the podcast page. <laughs> can yeah. I, before we before we wrap, can I ask one kind of out there question for both of you? Um yeah, man. How many years do we have until the robots take over? Like <laughs> until the machines completely overtake human society. We're touching on the contours of these issues when we talk about AI. So how long do we have? I'd say eternity because it's us who's shaping this technology. And I think we should let technology in the areas where it can support us, where it could benefit us, but it's our choice on how far we want to take it. I love that opinion because I completely disagree, but I, I want to hear Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think like, I think the application really matters, right? Like this idea of like ubiquitous machines running the world and we all like kind of sit in our little lawn chairs and drink milkshakes is not the future I see. Mine's a little dystopian, right? Like um, I look at like autonomous weapon systems and um, the increased application of those in war settings and sort of the leakage of that application into policing and other areas where the state controls the means of violence. And I'm concerned. I worry about machine error not so much machine takeover but machine error or like being overwhelmed by like the uh intensity and application of autonomous weapon systems it doesn't get a lot of talk in like the fun tech world of like personal assistant ais but it is a real thing that's been happening for a long time and i think accelerating at at a pace that might be dangerous. So I don't know when the machines take over, but I think the possibility for the machines to destroy us all is not far-fetched. I, th I like the answer of eternity based on the idea that, you know, humans are creating these things and creating the technology. I think my fear is like, what if we create something that is unbundleable or un unsolvable you know, and we create a situation where, yeah, where we can't solve it. I'm not saying, you know, I'm being hyperbolic a little bit when the machines take over, but I think it's more <laughs> like, um, when do we create something that has become fundamentally really, really, really difficult to undo and puts us in a place that, that causes harm, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily machines taking over everything and everybody, although some folks believe that could happen, but, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, mean, if you, I, worry if you I, I know where you're getting it. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I know where you're getting at, but if you listen to the conspiracy theorists on like COVID nineteen, and I just want to qualify that I am not one of them, but if you listen to them, and they talk about like the possible like synthetic origins of COVID, right? Um, and whether that is a man-made virus or human-made virus or not, like the implications of it being designed by people are just severe to the point you're making. And you can't put COVID-19 back in the bag. If so, if we create something like this, and I think a virus is a form of technology, by the way, like if you think of it as just a bunch of lines of code and some protein. And so like, I don't think it's far-fetched for us to be able to create something like that. I don't, I'm not arguing that we did in the case of COVID, but I, I don't think it's like super sci-fi Isaac Asimov energy to think about these issues um, because I think the technology sort of exists um, or is on the cusp for us to be able to build these things at low cost by like, you know, non-state actors. That's a terrifying proposition to me. You're so right. You're right. So I think here. definitely not all is uh, nice and rainbows and fluffy out there and nothing to worry about. But uh, as we had the discussion on, on, on my podcast, Pedro, I think it's really good to have a mature conversation about that and to look into what do we need to put in place now? How do we need to regulate? How do we need to course correct to avoid something happening in five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Uh, it shouldn't be underestimated, but I think it's also important to keep focus on the presence and not going too far into this, okay, robots who can't be controlled and will take over the world without us having any say in that anymore because i think that's creating panic and distracting for the issues that we need to tackle now and also would create some type of paralysis uh, paralysis to not tackle them now and therefore i think mature uh, not underestimation uh, of of the current uh, situation is important to do that that makes perfect sense and um i appreciate like the angle from which you attacked or addressed that issue um okay last thing Let's bring it back out to the beginning and your sort of like interesting non-tech experience. <laughs> One other thing I noticed is that you were a professional recipe developer and a food blogger and a like sort of like food scientist-y person. Tell me about mm -hmm. that story because that actually sounds, along with like horse photography, that sounds like the most interesting stuff you've ever been up to. <laughs> I have an interesting career, don't I? No, do. it's, uh, as mentioned, I love learning. And when I'm passionate and interested about a topic, I tend to go deep in that topic. And so with cake baking, it actually started out with uh, some friends initiating Cake Wednesday um, to to gift a cake to to a person that was giving writing lessons to us. And I was the person saying, oh, yes, I, I will do a cake. And uh, so every week I made a new cake up to the point where I had baked basically every recipe in my fam family cookbook. And this got me then into the internet and trying out new recipes there. This got me into food science. This got me into the physics and chemistry of baking and thinking of, well, can I develop something that's as fluffy as a, a sponge cake, but as chocolatey as a brownie and make a whole wedding cake for 200 people out of that so that I also have the structural stability that I need. And so I made some pretty interesting and, and time intense cakes. I think the top cake I did was like 70 hours of work in the matter of five hours. days. So yeah, uh, that that was a fun phase, but uh, yeah, it's 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 past now, and I'm just doing some cakes here and there. But it was really an interesting um, opportunity again, and this also led to TV appearances, workshops, uh, trade fair, live baking events, wedding cakes, and something like that, which was really uh, fun to do and experience. And I think 
for me, it's always about building skills and uh, learning something that I can also apply to other areas. And I think that's also something that benefits in my current job because I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a data scientist with the deepest AI expertise, but I would say I have more than basic understanding of uh, many areas. And this helped me to be in this translatory function where I can communicate with C-level audiences from our uh, multinational customers, where I can communicate with regulators, with lawyers, with data scientists, and also help all of them to reach common understanding. Because oftentimes, if you see the data scientist talking uh, to the senior manager, there are some discrepancies and some need for translation. And I think I can uh, contribute that. I would say that like a more than basic understanding of the issues is the most humble understatement of your abilities and skills possible. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> I am like w wildly impressed by the range of things that you've been interested in, both inside our profession and inside our kind of industry and outside. Um, I've, we've had a lot of guests on this show. I just want to say it to you because I'm going to say it in the intro or later, but like you're one of the most fascinating people in the entire industry I've ever met. Um, and I hope everyone Thank listens you so much. Out to you and says hello and listens to your podcast <laughs> because the work you're doing is really impressive. But like just as a like model for how to be a true renaissance human being, you are setting an excellent example for all of us. Thank you for being on the show with us. It means a lot to me. And um, I hope we do this again. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Peter and Andy. And I can't wait to have our next conversation. Thank you. All right, sorry, I had to run. My daughter needed help with the TV. I'm sorry. That was so we handled it. Managed. Uh, we, we handled it, and we talked about her baking career, which she missed, but she was a uh, food scientist for a time. So oh, that's too bad. Oh, thank you so much. That was so. That's a really interesting chat. I totally agree, Pedro. Really. Yeah, I really what enjoyed it. Fucking, like, Alexander, you have to go be a like. You got to go run for something. You got to be elected for something. <laughs> like, you got to go be I, like just like the diversity of thoughts that you generate from the range of your experiences. So impressive. So impressive. Actually, one of my goals is to do a TED talk at one point in my time because one go. of my other interests and passion areas is public speaking. I, for example, also made a professional radio moderator and commercial speaking education for four years and uh, did quite some public speaking training. So always interested in doing some events or, or panels and at one point in time. I hope to be. We got to get you out on there. Thank you so exactly. much. Here's what happens. You can if, drop. If you know somebody or if you meet somebody. <laughs> oh, I will. I, you know, I've done oh, a TED talk before and, and mine was a nightmare oh. in a good way. Mine was all over the place. But I will ping the send, TED talk. Oh, send the link. Like, send the link. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. So there's like two types of TED Talks. There's like the big ones and the big stadiums <laughs> and the big things. I didn't do that. And then there's like a niche audience TED Talk forum. And I did it at the, my undergrad. And there were like a thousand people there. So. Yeah, it was 10 yeah. <laughs> For me, actually, really one of good. the most a thousand fun thousand. experiences wow, was thousand. when I joined Mostly AI. I was just three weeks in the company and we got an invite to an AI conference in Tokyo. And the CEO is a data scientist who doesn't like to be on stage that much. And he was like, well, we have this invite. Do you want to be on stage and present synthetic data? And I was like, yeah, well, if you think after three weeks, I can complain, <laughs> uh, explain this uh, complicated topic. And then what this was some type of startup pitch. And I got this big check and some contracts with Sony and something like that. So it was a really cool Amazing. Uh, first nice. experience. And then I once had the pleasure to do this in the US in front of 5,000 people. But I think that's my career ambition to go on big stages and spread the word about responsible AI and privacy. I have, no doubt, I, have no doubt I have no doubt you're going to do it, my friend, <laughs> and you're going to rock it. 
um awesome thanks for hanging out with us perfect. you can awesome. drop we'll do so your you can, we'll do thank your you so much now, and then we'll let you know when this thing's going live. perfect awesome perfect friend. do you have an estimation when you're going to publish it or is it just like two handy? week or two okay perfect perfect i'll see you then well thank you so much for having me it was such a great thanks, time bye, bye. have a great rest bye. of your day bye, bye. bye. bye.